Our sermon passage for this morning is 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we not, might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Thank you, Stephen. Let's pray together. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the one who invites us into your word to taste and see that you are good. And so we have, and so you are. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are also a consuming fire, resplendent in holiness, unmatched in beauty, and over all that was and is and ever will be, you reign. And we rejoice in you and the fullness of who you are. Even as we do so, Father, we recognize and we acknowledge our sinfulness and how desperately far we fall short of your glory. When we consider our lives, the waywardness of our hearts, the weakness of our flesh, and the profound depths of our sin, we are tempted to woe and despair. But this morning and every day, what a dumbfounding joy it is to remember that you did not leave us in that condition to die, but that you sent your son Jesus to shed his blood on the cross for our sins. You raised him to life, and through him, you offer that same eternal life to us. Not only that, but in your wisdom, you invite us into your work and call us to take your gospel with us wherever we go every day, but this month especially, we pray that you would give us a joyful burden for that work. We pray that for our many missions partners who are doing the same. And we pray that for our sister churches all over our city, our country, and our world. Help us to remember that success is not measured by any standard of this world, but only and ever by faithfulness to you. Help us to do so faithfully, in humble confidence of your ability to save and in self-sacrificial love for our family, for our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and especially for those who would consider themselves our enemies. 
And now I pray once again for the preaching of your word. This is a task that is far beyond me. And so I plead for your help. I pray that you would give light and life to your word and that every word I say would be of you and would point us to you. Help us to not just learn more information or grow in knowledge this morning, but help us to grow in wisdom. Help your word to sink the deepest roots in our hearts that it might bear much fruit in our lives and help us to live it out so that others will see nothing but you in us. If there are any here this morning who do not know you, would you please save them? In all that we are, have, say, and do, may you receive all the glory and all the honor. It is in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. If you haven't already done so, take your Bibles and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. My name is Austin Shaver, and I'm one of the pastors here. Our pastor Jamie is out of town with some family this weekend. If you are just joining us, as LJ shared earlier, we are in the midst of our Missions Emphasis Month that we call Redeemer on Mission. And this emphasis each month and each year when we do this includes our preaching. So if you're new to Redeemer, our typical practice in our preaching is to work our way through a book of the Bible, which we just finished a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But every now and then, very occasionally, and Missions Month is one of those occasions, we will take a brief break to focus on a particular theme. And so as you've already heard from LJ this morning, our theme for this year's missions emphasis is engage. And the idea behind that, as Jamie preached last week and as LJ shared this morning, is that the Holy Spirit who filled and empowered and sent the apostles to proclaim the gospel is the same Holy Spirit who fills and empowers and sends us to do the same. And so each week during this month, we want to consider what Scripture teaches us about what that looks like and how to do so wherever we are. And so today specifically, as we continue this theme of engaging where we are, we want to focus on and help you think through what that looks like in your workplace, in your job, in your vocation. And as we do so, we recognize, we recognize that for many of you, the idea of workplace still conjures up very traditional locations. Maybe you picture an office or a classroom or a hospital or a construction site or a cubicle or anything like that. But we also know that for many of you, especially in this post-COVID era, the workplace may look like a computer screen. It may look like a car. It may look like a studio. It, it could look like so many different things. Maybe, maybe you're Dave Norwood and the workplace looks like you're in charge of an entire Pacific island. If that's the case, we have a church planting opportunity we would like to discuss with you. But you know, dozens and dozens of possibilities. We know that whatever the case may be, We want to consider what Scripture teaches us about being faithful gospel witnesses in the context of our vocations and our workplaces. And so to do that this morning, we're looking at this passage in 1 Thessalonians that Stephen just read for us. And one challenge to this approach in contrast to our usual working through a book of the Bible is we have to come to these passages a little abruptly. So I want us to take about three minutes, make sure we get the context of what's going on here to help us dig in and understand what the Word is saying. So 1 Thessalonians, like Galatians that we just finished, another one of Paul's very early letters, probably just around 20 years or so after the resurrection. And to get the whole context, we need to see what it says in Acts 16 and 17. You don't have to turn there, but this takes place, we learn, during Paul's second missionary journey to Corinth. And at the end of Acts 16, 
we see Paul and Silas being released from prison. This is when there was the earthquake and the Philippian jailers converted and they're let go. So we come to Acts 17, one through four, and it says this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, here we are, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, because this is Paul, of course, what happens next, a mob forms and runs him out of town. That happens a lot in Paul's life. But we know from later in Thessalonians and in Acts that Paul continues to be concerned for these brand new believers. So he sends Timothy back to them to find out how they're doing. And he learns later from Timothy that to his pleasant surprise, they're doing very well. So many of Paul's churches that he's planted immediately fall into sin and division and all these things. But the Thessalonians are doing well, but they have some questions because he had to leave so quickly. He was there for such a short time. And so he sits down to write this letter to them. And he opens with this heartfelt expression of gratitude for their response to the gospel. And then turns to reminding them that, hey, when I and Silas and Timothy were there, this is how we behaved around you. This was the authority for our message. And he roots all of that in the fact that Christ is coming back. Now you may be thinking, huh, that sounds really great. I have no idea how that connects to me being a gospel witness in my workplace. What, what's going on there? Well, I hope you'll see that throughout our time this morning. But if we were summing it all up, then Paul's reminders of how he and his coworkers here conducted themselves in what was functionally their workplace, they're meant to give greater credibility to their message. They're meant to respond to accusations being made against them and, and, and to point to Christ. So for us today, we certainly want to be able to say the same thing about our lives. We want to be able to point people to our conduct in the same way, particularly as it applies in our workplaces. So, so if you take nothing else from this morning, I think the main point we want to convey to you is this that wherever the Holy Spirit has placed you to work, whatever work looks like for you, then in his strength and by his power, you should live and speak in such a way that Jesus is glorified and the gospel is clearly proclaimed. That's our goal. That's our aim. So let's consider these things together. Our first point this morning is work with integrity. Work with integrity. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. I know that's not verse 1. I haven't forgotten how to count, but we'll get there. I want to take it out of order because it'll help us see the argument a little more clearly. So verse 10, Paul says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So Paul reminds the Thessalonians here right out of the gate that, hey, all these things that we've said all these things that we're doing that I'm talking about, we did it in front of all of you. We weren't hiding in the corner. We weren't in the dark. You saw what we did. And even more importantly, we did it in full view of God. Just as he says, you were witnesses and God also. Now there's a quick early point of application this morning because I recognize for many of you, work can be very isolating. It can be very lonely depending on your context. And we have to remember even in that, that our work is still done for others. And most importantly, in full view of the Lord, our lives are lived in front of him. So as we remember that, we want to conduct ourselves as Paul says here, which is what? Holy and righteous and blameless. Now those are some bold claims to make about oneself. So can Paul back that up? What, what does he mean when he's saying this? 
Well, to see that, now we need to look back up to verse one and work our way through. So look again at verse one. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Okay, a couple of things to unpack there. First, Paul's reminder that their coming had not been in vain is apparently prompted by some concerns they had that, that their suffering is continuing. They're, they're like, did this fail? Did this go wrong? And he's saying, no, just because the suffering continues doesn't mean your efforts have failed. And this is so important for us to remember because in all of our lives, including our workplaces, if we are seeking to be faithful gospel witnesses, we will meet with resistance and with failure. And I don't want to minimize those around the world who are facing true life-threatening resistance. Ours here probably won't look that way. But know now that to, to meet that resistance isn't a sign that you have failed. We want to remain faithful, even in the face of that kind of pushback. Secondly, what did Paul do in the face of this resistance? He says he had boldness in God to declare the gospel of God. There it is. There, there is our task in all that we do. But notice two really important things here. First, his boldness was in God, not himself. So even as we desire to be bold gospel witnesses in our workplace, let's not confuse humble boldness in the Lord with being an obnoxious jerk. Those are different things. And I know that's hard to remember these days. People forget that. But on the one hand, you have humble boldness in God. Good. Obnoxious jerk, bad. Don't do that, please. We're gonna talk about it more in a minute, but, but we have to keep that separation in mind. But second, he did seek to declare the gospel. On the flip side, he wasn't just trying to be a nice, kind guy. That is a good thing. And we should be nice, kind people. But that's not an end unto itself. The purpose, the, the goal for this was to have opportunities to share the gospel. God had given him this message and he was compelled to share it. What is it? And no doubt many of you could answer this better than I could, but, but let us never miss an opportunity to declare this greatest of news because his gospel message was this. There is a holy God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created everything that is every person, every atom, every ounce of this universe. And we have, and we continue to sin against him. And because of his holiness, he cannot be in the presence of sin, the punishment for which would be wrath eternal forever in hell. However, because of his great mercy, because of the great love that he has for his people, he sent his son Jesus, who lived a life of perfect obedience as both God and man, and he was crucified, and there God poured out his wrath that should have been poured out on us, on his son who died in our place. And because Jesus was without sin, the grave could not hold him. And on the third day he rose and he ascended to the Father where he sits now interceding on our behalf, and he will return, and he will judge the world. But he promises that if we repent of our sin, believe in him, confess with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised from the dead, we will be saved. That is the message that Paul could not keep in. That is the message that we ought not be able to keep in, that we should take wherever we go, wherever our lives take us, including into our vocations and into our workplaces. But how did Paul share it in such a way that he could say before the Thessalonians and before the Lord that his conduct was holy and righteous and blameless? And, and do we have any hope 
of being able to do the same, of imitating him? I think we do, because look at what he says in verse three. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came, excuse me, with words of flattery, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So look at what Paul says there. He, he outlines six negative things that he did not do. Why, why these things? Well, I think probably because those were the accusations that were being made against them, and he's able to rebut them because of their very public conduct. Look, look again at the list. He says that their appeal for the gospel was not one. It was not an error. It was true what they have taught and what they have proclaimed. Two, it was not from impurity. It was done with right motives. Three, it was not in an attempt to deceive. It was done with honesty and uprightness and in truth. Four, it was not done with flattery. It wasn't done to puff people up. It was done in the, in the right way. Five, it was not with the pretext for greed. This was not for personal financial gain, certainly not for improper financial gain. And then six, it was not for the purpose of seeking glory from people. They certainly were not trying to win a popularity contest. Now, that is not necessarily an exhaustive list, but that is a pretty fair summary of what it looks like to live and act with integrity, of how we ought to conduct ourselves at all times, but especially in our workplace. But Paul sums it up even more neatly and positively than that. Right in the middle of verse four, he says, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. This is the key to living and working with integrity. In all that we say and do, we must always remember and be motivated by the desire above all to please our God. This cannot be a negotiable for us. And the, and the time to resolve that is, is right now. Not when those temptations are gonna come to compromise that stance, to compromise that conviction. Right now, resolve that in whatever you do, you will live, you will work with integrity before God and before others. And before we move on from this point, let me offer a quick sort of aside and confessional because this can come across very, very sanctimoniously. I am not up here pronouncing from on high, do these things, this is so easy, what's wrong with you? I've, I've been there. I, I am so grateful to the Lord that for the last three years, he's allowed me to be a pastor here. That, that is a joy and a blessing that still just amazes me every day. But for 19 years, from the time I became a Christian in 2000 when I was 17 until I joined staff here, I held five kind of primary jobs. And very briefly, those are first, when I was in college, I worked for the University of Tennessee Athletic Department. I assure you this had nothing to do with my athletic ability because there's none. But I was the t-shirt gun guy at basketball games. So I don't know if I have any need for that skill. Steven, I don't think t-shirt guns are allowed at the Redeemer worship gatherings, but maybe, we'll see. Um, second, during law school, I clerked for a couple of different law firms. I also served as a youth pastor at a small church in East Knoxville. After law school, I worked as a lawyer for a couple of different firms. And also early in my legal career, I was a county commissioner for a couple of terms in Loudoun County. Now, some of you, your first thought is, wait a minute. We let a guy who was a lawyer and a politician be a pastor here. <laughs> Redeemer's standards are slipping. Maybe, we'll see, we'll see. But more seriously, I share that not to say like, ooh, look at all the cool jobs I've had. You all have amazing jobs. But to say that as we're wrestling with these things, I've worked in places where this was really hard to live out. And to my shame, I failed a lot at it. I can tell you all the stories you need there. But, but as we're receiving God's commands here, I'm preaching this to myself, 
just as much. Because this is hard. This is hard to do. There's a reason we need the Holy Spirit to live this out. But the command remains, live and work with integrity. So back to our text and our second point, which is this. Work with gospel goals. Work with gospel goals. Look down at verse nine with me. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Now here, Paul makes a a subtle shift in his emphasis as he moves from talking about how he and Timothy and Silas conducted themselves to describing the why. What was the purpose of what they were doing here, their work or their labor and toil as he says it? Well, he identifies two reasons for their work and they're related to one another. First, they worked not to be a burden to any of the Thessalonians. And then second, they did so in order to proclaim the gospel to them. So let's take a few minutes to consider both of these. First, he says they labored not to be a burden to them. Now, I think there are both material and relational components to this desire. First, the material aspect is he is literally trying not to be a a financial burden on them. He's making use of his trade to give him opportunities to share the gospel. We see this in Acts 18. You don't have to turn there, but verses one through five, it says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with him and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus." So you see, Paul possessed for his day a very, very marketable skill in being a tent maker. And he was glad to use that to allow him to engage in sharing the gospel. So in a very tangible sense, he was using his job as it were so that he could proclaim to the gospel to the Thessalonians who might not otherwise have been able to support him in his work here. And I hope this will be very freeing for many of you this morning because while scripture absolutely calls us to bear gospel witness in every area of our lives, including our workplaces, it doesn't tell us exactly what that has to look like. So there are a number of ways we can fulfill this command, one of which we see here is Paul's job allowing him the financial flexibility to take the gospel to those around him. Now, we have to bear in mind that for us, the hard line that many of us would draw between being at work and the rest of our lives is a very modern development. For for the original recipients of this letter, that would have been somewhat of a foreign concept. Life was much more blended as it were, and that's gonna color how we read and apply this passage. So let's keep going. We'll come back to some practical applications in just a minute. But I said a moment ago, there was a material piece to this not being a burden, but I think there's also a relational piece. What do I mean? Well, look back up at verses seven and eight and hear what Paul says there. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now that is incredibly tender language that reveals Paul's heart for these people. Look at how he says it. He says, gentle, like a nursing mother caring for her children, affectionately desirous, This is the language of a deep, profound love that that you can't fake. You know when somebody loves you like this. That shines through very clearly. 
And I think it makes all the difference. Paul knew they weren't going to be won over to the gospel by being beat over the head and yelled at. But through tender patience and love and care. And he also knew that they weren't mere evangelism projects. Look again. He says he was ready to share not only the gospel, but also our own lives. You all know the old cliche. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? Well, I think we see that lived out right here. So what about us, Redeemer? What about you, Christian? Do your coworkers see you, you know, whether in a physical workplace or online, and, and yes, it counts there too, as, as nothing more than just this you know, raging culture warrior ready to vanquish your enemies? Because you know, here's what I fear, is that sometimes we think, oh, to be, to be bold in the gospel, I mean, I've gotta let them know I mean it. I've gotta jump up on my desk and be like, behold, pagans! I can see into your souls and you're going to hell. I had a street preacher yell that at me at UT once. It was terrifying. Not incredibly persuasive, but nonetheless, we, we had a little moment there and, and we did it. But that, that's silly. But I think sometimes we can get in our minds that, okay, if I'm going to be a bold witness, then, then I mean, I, I've got to get it. But is that what we see here? Or do our coworkers see us being affectionately desirous of them? Being ready and willing to share our lives, our money, our time, our emotional energy, our efforts, all these things because they are so dear to us. How do your coworkers see you? Now, I can hear the objection forming in your mind because, because I get the same one. Maybe you fear that you know, this is just a posture. This is just a, a smokescreen that you use to avoid having those hard conversations. You use it to avoid confronting the difficult truths in people's lives. Let, let's be honest. Yeah, it can be used that way. Th that is a, a risk that we face here. But to do so is to ignore the totality of this passage because in verses eight and nine, Paul explicitly ties this posture to having the opportunity to share the gospel. So if we're to take seriously the whole counsel of God, we have to recognize the parallel dangers of, on the one hand, engaging in a cold evangelism that is just utterly devoid of the love of God that he calls us to have for others. And on the other hand, a, a vacuous affection that is equally devoid of the love of God because we don't care for the eternal destiny of those whom we encounter. We have to have both pieces of this because we are called to share the gospel. And, and this part is so key. We can't save anybody. Only God can save, but he, in his wisdom, has called us to do so through our sharing the gospel. And if we can trust him with that, then we can focus on the very hard work of stepping into people's lives and loving them well. This is not a multi-step program. This is not 10 steps to getting people saved. It's whatever your vocational context, gospel engagement must be born of affection for the lost. It requires a willingness to open and share your life and the hard, hard, deep soul work of loving people who don't always want to be loved, of telling them a truth they don't always want to hear and being willing to go back and do it over and over and over and over again. And it's not for the faint-hearted, but for those who are willing to labor and toil in love for neighbor and a desire to please the Lord. And that brings us to our final point, work with the end in sight. 
We want to work with integrity, with gospel goals, and we want to keep the end in sight. Look back once more at verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul closes this passage, much like he'll close the whole letter, by calling us to look to God's kingdom and glory. And it's so important that we keep that in mind and in sight, because if so, it can be incredibly freeing to us. What do I mean? Well, again, you don't have to turn there, but consider one other passage. In Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, Paul says this, bond servants, employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, rendering, excuse me, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, employers, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is what I mean when I say that it can be very freeing because you see when you're doing good work as to the Lord, not for men knowing that it's he who sees you, he will reward you, then that changes everything because it gives all of our work, whatever it may be, a dignity that nobody can take away from you. So whether you love or hate your job, whether you do or do not make your sale or get that promotion, whether you are or are not treated fairly by your coworkers, your boss, whatever the case may be, if you're doing your work is for the Lord, he sees and he knows and he remembers. And it also means we can tear down any kind of false divide between sacred and secular work. Scripture doesn't recognize that distinction because any work that is done for the Lord is sacred and can be God-honoring. And look, I have no doubt that some of you will be called into direct vocational full-time ministry. Maybe some of your paths will look like mine and you'll come from another career. Kids, students, young adults, some of you may be called directly into it and praise God for it. That is wonderful. And I pray that he will do great and mighty things through you. But that is not the only way to do gospel work. Because for many, many, many more of you, you are going to be called, have been, will be called to every kind of occupation and workplace imaginable. It never ceases to amaze me all the incredible places Redeemer has people. And that is so wonderful because here's the point. Above all, whatever vocation, whatever career, whatever job you choose, or whatever is chosen for you as life sometimes does, you are called to it for gospel proclamation. But I hope you'll be encouraged this morning to see that that can take so many forms. You know, what are those? Well, we've seen some of them already in scripture. You have someone like, like Paul who has a trade that lets him directly go and share the gospel. For some of you, that may look like being a business owner that can structure your business to help further that. In other places like Acts 16, you have someone like Lydia who said sold purple cloth and funded those who are going. Some of you are in positions to be able to do that. Others of you, you're in jobs that put you in touch with so many people that many of us will never, ever, ever have a chance to know. And you will have a chance to love them and build relationships with them and point them to Jesus. Others of you, like the video we saw just a few minutes ago, like the McCree's, you have a job that is needed on the field that will let you go to places that overt missionaries can't get. I don't know. There, there are so many examples that we couldn't possibly hope to cover them all, but we would be so glad to help you think through what that might look like in your context. But as we conclude this morning, for those of you who like checklists, here are just a few things 
that you can take as walking points that you can pray over, that you consider as you think of how best to please God and engage in your workplace. First, do your job well. And it makes me sad that I even have to say this, but I have seen so many Christians who try to use their faith as an excuse for being a subpar employee. Do good work. Do the best that you can. Be careful. What I'm not saying is that you have to be the best at every job. The Lord knows. I don't think I've ever been the best at any place I've been. And I appreciate the Redeemer staff withholding their amens on that. That's great. But, but wherever you're at, do the best you can so that when accusations arise against you, when people look against you, it can't stick because you are working well. Secondly, don't be a jerk. Or more positively, be kind. Be a good friend to the people you work with. Love them with genuine affection, with true care, with gentleness. Be willing to step into their lives and love them when and where God grants you the opportunity. Third, to that end, always be praying for the ability to see those moments when they come. Because look, we recognize and we appreciate that many of you work in places where you have to walk a delicate balance between honoring the Lord and honoring your employer. And we don't want to minimize how difficult that could be. We're here to pray with you and talk with you about what that might look like. But I hope some of Jamie's sermons in Galatians are very helpful to you here because we have so much freedom in Christ. And so unless you are being asked to directly disobey the Lord, we would strongly encourage you, honor your employer. Respect your workplace's rules. If you can't engage as directly there as you'd like, love these people so that they might want to come have dinner with you or come to your home and share the gospel there. There are lots of ways to do that. You don't have to jump on a chair like a maniac and scream at them. That's probably not going to help. But pray, pray for those moments and take them all while honoring your employer. And then last and finally, I think we would do well to give the final word to the Lord. You're going to know this passage, but Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Look, whatever you feel about your job right now, you love it, you hate it, somewhere in between, a mix of all those things depending on the day, remember that while work has fallen under the curse right now, and it won't be perfectly redeemed until the new creation, in the meantime, we're given a glimpse here that when done to please God, all work is gospel work. All work has a God-given dignity and all work can and should and must be done for his glory. Lord, let it be said of us. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard thing. This is difficult to do. And so we, we cast ourselves on your mercy and ask that you would help us in every aspect of our lives, but especially in whatever workplace you have called us, to live and work with integrity, to live and work with gospel goals, and to remember the end that is coming. Help us, help us to do well as you define doing well. Help us to love those around us. and Help us to be willing to lay down our lives, whatever that may take,